This morning, numbers confirming what we see and feel all around us. The American Psychological Association finding nearly 80 percent of adults say the coronavirus is a significant source of stress in their life. Next tonight, the emotional toll the pandemic is taking on American children. Parents noticing a significant rise in depression and anxiety. We're in the midst of a mental health epidemic right now, and I think it's only going to get worse. You don't think the worst is over? No, not at all. No, I think in a way the worst is yet to come. There is a hidden epidemic stemming directly from the first pandemic, a psychological pandemic. Illness, loss of loved ones, social isolation, economic insecurity, disruption of routine have taken an enormous toll on mental health. Depression, anxiety, suicides, and drug use are all on the rise. All this making mental health services more important than ever. But how do you deliver mental health services during COVID-19? It has led us to revision mental health and substance use treatment. I'm Melissa Bailey principal at Bowling Business Strategies. I spent the better part of 20 years working for the state of Vermont, primarily in mental health. Mental health is something we all have, just like physical health, and it's on a continuum. I'm Raquel Maison-Jeffers, program officer at the Nicholson Foundation and a self-professed advocate. And by that, I mean someone who has worked inside state government, holding a deep commitment to transforming health systems to improve outcomes for more people. Welcome to State of Mind, where two former state leaders explore new ways to a better mental health system. We are ready to stop tinkering at the edges of change. On today's episode, your not-so-typical therapist we'll discuss how one organization is reimagining the delivery of evidence-based mental health care to reach more people. Community health workers are well-situated to address mental health concerns in underserved communities. They act as a bridge between affected individuals and available resources. We'll explore how non-traditional health workers are supporting mental health. Today, we are speaking with clinical psychologist and psychotherapist Dr. Ruth Fairkai, who is the Global Training and Research Lead of the Friendship Bench, an evidence-based intervention developed in Zimbabwe to bridge the mental health treatment gap. Welcome, Dr. Fairkai. First, can Hi. you please tell us a little bit about the concept of the Friendship Bench and how it works? Hi, thank you, and thanks for everybody who's listening. So the concept of the friendship bench is a rather simple one. So as it says bench, it is literally on a bench, and that came from the... Um, the need to find a space that was easily accessible for people within primary healthcare clinics in urban settings in Zimbabwe. And um, it literally had to be a bench because there was no space in the actual buildings. Um, and the concept is, is basic as well. It's a psychological intervention based on CBT. So we offer problem solving therapy, which is um, 
delivered by trained and supervised community health workers who are employed as health promoters by city health authorities. And um, in their usual work, they give um, the public information about cholera outbreaks or vaccination drives or any of those things. And now we gave them an additional skill set to deliver the problem solving therapy and to give psychoeducation on basic, basic mental health um, concepts. And we mainly treat mild to moderate um, depression and anxiety, which is called kufungisisa in the local language, which translates to thinking too much, which I think makes a lot of sense. Um, when we think too much, we get sick and in our setting people somatize a lot. So if they end up going to the clinic because they're thinking too much and they're presenting with a headache and they talk to a healthcare provider who has no, um, no further training in mental health, they will probably walk out with a painkiller. And so we found it very important to offer this additional mental health program, which wasn't there before. So these community health workers, can you talk a little bit about who they are, uh, what their background is, et cetera? Yeah, that's a great question. So community health workers that work on the on the friendship bench are often called the grandmothers because they happen to be elderly women. And this is more of a coincidence than that was planned by us. So they had been employed after independence in the 80s um, or early 90s. And so they basically grew old on their job, if I can say it that way. So I think our mean age is like 56 or something. We have one who's 83 um, and they, they are uh, they've got basic, very basic, if at all, um, education. So most of them have maybe finished um, primary school and have really worked on the job and gathered the experience on the job. And I always say that that is super important to look at because community health workers so often get really underappreciated. Um, so there's this... Um, the term that we use is called task shifting, and that's done a lot in low and middle income countries where medical procedures, basically little ones, are given to lay health workers, community health workers who get trained in a specific task and, and then receive supervision, etc. And And it's kind of... It's only been in the past maybe 20 years, I would say, that it's really hit the mental health space um, to use this task shifting approach. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and so can you talk a little bit, you started to say initially how patients get to the bench to sit with the grandmothers or the community mm -hmm. health workers to mm -hmm. talk about their emotions and their thinking uh, patterns. Mm -hmm. So could you talk a little bit more about how that connection happens? Yeah, this is also a fantastic question because since COVID hit us, we had to reshuffle things and literally reimagine the way we, we deliver the services. So where before anybody who came to a primary healthcare clinic could go and see a grandmother provided the service was at that particular clinic. Um, whereas now a lot of clinics have been closed down or have very restricted services at the moment. We've been... Um, We've been literally experimenting, I would say, with an online version of the Friendship Bench, which is really complicated in our setting because a lot of people do not have access to a private phone or they don't have access to data bundles, how we call that here. So that is, that is not as easy as we thought it would be. And people do prefer face-to-face uh, -face settings. So we call it the Friendship Bench in the community. And as I had said um, initially, the lay health workers 
um, are doing a lot of outreach work. So they're literally living in the same communities as their clients. They know these people. They've been working there for 30, 40 years. They, they probably know the whole families of, of particular clients. And they walk along the roads and chat to people, go pe visit people at houses. Um, so a lot of the sessions since the last year, since the COVID uh, restrictions have happened, um, are happening under trees or in, in people's houses or in their front yards or backyards, depending. And I know that we often wonder about the confidentiality aspect of this, right? Because you have to think of a township where a lot of people live. And if I say there's a house, it doesn't mean that there's only one or two people living in that house. There might be several families living in a house. So some people are very worried about the confidentiality and then would take it to a place where it's a little bit safer and for others it seems to be less so um, that they have to really change the setting or they could not sit in front of the house you know the the, the grandmothers also walk around with sort of friendship inch t-shirts because in our setting they're almost like they're walking advertisement right so it says friendship bench and then people would come up to them and ask well, what is this program and what are you doing and what is your work and that is how people connect and at the same time we're trying to really push hard on social media and radio stations and television nationally in Zimbabwe to to broadcast that there is a service like this and that there is something like mental health because obviously in our setting we have a lot of stigma still and a lot of lack of knowledge and awareness and um, we also noticed though and I like always like to say that um, because I think in the western world we always think everybody has a phone and everybody has access to internet and social media etc and and it's it's not necessarily the case so um, yeah lots of learning happening on that level. Yeah. I love the, the idea of um, recognizing that having people who are known entities within a community being able to provide this service um, and support people. Could you describe a little bit um, any of the research or evidence that supports this model or models like this? Yeah, that's fantastic. So we're actually proud to say that our program is evidence-based. We ran a clinical trial in 2015, and the results were published in JAMA, which, which is really, really exciting. That's a high-impact journal. And um, we found that in 80% of our clients taking part in the intervention arm, so receiving the program, for instance, suicidal ideation was massively reduced. And, and that's a great that's a great outcome, you know, um, and that was um, after follow-up as well. And so, so in that clinical trial, we, we basically gave the proof of the concept and that led to, yeah, the world being very interested in this very simple and cost-effective model. Yeah, so actually to that point, I mean, you, you started, you said earlier that, um, you know, low and middle income countries might not have the same, uh, need for this approach. However, uh, working in New Jersey and in the US in general, I actually feel like a lot of what you're saying about how you're working resonates a lot with the same issues that we struggle with here in terms of access, in terms of um, feeling uh, connected to mental health professionals in the community, in terms of the stigma that is still surrounding um, the, the ability to reach out to individuals in the community. So could you talk a little bit about sort of how this model grew out of Zimbabwe's culture and how it might also be applicable uh, in the West and in the US in particular. 
Yeah, that's that's exactly our dream. Like we want to bring it global. Um, the Zimbabwean society has a, and I think it is in many African and probably in many, many cultures all over the world that the elders play a significant role, right? In terms of cohesion for a society or just being present, being, being um, people who have the patience and the time to talk. Um, and therefore, I think it came, it, it fit very well in our context, yet we always try to say as well that it was hard when we train the grandmothers for them to understand that the typical traditional style of the elder tells the younger person what to do. So the advice giving, which all we mental health people know is a no-no in psychotherapy, right? And that was difficult for them to understand that this is all about empowering the client to find their own um, solutions, really after choosing their own problem, really, you know? And I think that is exactly the point with, with, that makes it universal. So we have um, trained, community health workers in other countries. There is a friendship bench in New York City, which you might have heard about that uses the model and um, quite successfully so as well in, in Harlem and the Bronx. So again, rather in low resource settings and it is exactly about the connection and about creating that space where people can talk, right? Where one person literally offers that safe space and says, I'm here for you, I talk to you. There's no clock that ticks, there's no fee that you have to pay for this. I'm, I'm just here, I'm offering an ear. Um, I'm non-judgmental, I'm sworn to confidentiality and, and and safety for everybody and that's where I think the link is so that that, that it, it could be re replicated anywhere basically. Well you had talked about some of the changes that um, you've had to make because of COVID and just thinking you know post-pandemic which we will hit at some point and all the mental health need that will be um, you know highlighted and and need to be responded to. Can you talk a little bit about like teaching other people this approach and how to spread this? Like, what are you doing to, you know, go beyond the borders of Zimbabwe? You talked about New York. I'm just sort of curious if you could expand a little bit on, on how do we get others to do this really important service? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Um, so at the moment, of course, when we say we're evidence-based, we are trying to explain as well, if you want to call it evidence-based, you must follow our model, right? So, um, so therefore we are actually in a process right now of building ourselves as an organization that can help other organizations to bring that model to fruition in their setting. And that's also not as easy. So we're learning a lot of how to adapt training material. So currently I'm working with a group in Jordan to adapt the model for that setting and adapt training material. And we're gonna run our training soon. And um, I'm personally always very, very excited about the cultural and language adaptation that is needed. Um, but I believe there is probably so much more. So yes, of course it takes a volunteer who says, I wanna learn, I wanna to talk to people. But on the other hand, of course it takes a little bit more than as, as any mental health person knows that as well. This, it takes, um, a protective layer for the counselor in a way, right? Like we, we can't, not all of us can just easily sit with someone and, and listen to client stories and not get affected. And the idea here is to make it safe for everybody. So it does not make sense if counselors are stressed out after what they hear 
Um, so, so then we, yeah, we wouldn't, we wouldn't help anybody, right? And, and again, there is a, there's this fine, these fine skills within therapy that are, they are really, really important. And even if we have maybe an inert empathy skill and we kind of have that interest and curiosity in what other people want to say and have experienced, there's still that, that part of, okay, how am I reacting to this, you know? And can I bring the person back, especially if a person is quite emotionally riled up, for instance, because maybe this is the first time they speak. As you said earlier, you know, it's hard for people to reach out, you know, um, it, it might not feel safe. And, and especially these encounters then have to be extra safe right because we know when people reach out and it is a bad experience for them they won't come back for many years and i think that's that's the the biggest uh, link here and that's why we always try to say we would rather work with organizations who have a setting that protects both counselor and client and not just basically plunk some benches in a park and put some volunteers there and just see who comes uh, I, that's a nice idea, but <laughs> I would rather say let's just chat about the weather on the bank uh, or on the bench in the in the park, rather than than talk about the problems or the deepest worries or or dreams or disappointments or whatever people come with. You know. Yeah, I think. And, and, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Like just first, do no harm, right? So that yeah. the opening yeah. up of the trauma can be an emotional experience for everyone involved and it needs to be conducted in a safe and respectful environment with you know the right supports in place so that's very wise that you're moving cautiously i just want to ask one last thing as someone who would love to see this model spread further what if you had one wish of what you would need to really uh spread this model um taking into account the fidelity issues and the respect uh, for the model, uh, what, what would you need to really uh, expand access to the service? Um, a parallel effort of putting mental health curricula, so basically like a friendship bench training into schools, universities, any kind of trainings, where basically it becomes like, you know, I'm just going to go down to my friendship bench training now, you know, and in three weeks I'm done with my thing or in one week or, you know, where, where everybody kind of gets the awareness around these things. Um, maybe some turn out to be friendship bench counselors, but others are just respectful for any of these processes that they might see on a bench, even if the bench is in a park, maybe. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Farhai, for joining us today. This gives us important insight on how creative solutions informed by real evidence can reach people in their own communities. That does it for this episode. Please join us for the next episode of State of Mind. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.